Hi, I'm Jason Newlander, and I've created a new fictional podcast on the OneOfUs.net podcast network called Salt. If you're a fan of crime noir with a little sci-fi thrown in, then I think this just might be your thing. Jean-Pierre Desperrois is a Haitian-born salt smuggler living in 1931 Tunis and born during a voodoo ritual with the uncanny ability to travel through space and time. Think The Big Sleep meets 12 Years a Slave meets Doctor Who, and you've got the idea. 20 half-hour episodes tell the first season's story, and I promise it's a doozy. Salt podcasts every other week on the oneofus.net podcast network. Subscribe today. Richard, have you seen my cat? Uh, uh, no. I, I can't figure out why there are no cats around here. I, you know, I'm, I'm really... where's my sonic screwdriver? It's no. always right here on the coffee table. I, I don't know. I, I've, I've been wondering as well. You know, I, I, where's, where's my vaporizer? Yeah, I, I, I know. I put it somewhere. Right. I, I, it's I, hang on. My jean shorts. Where are my jean shorts? Well, hang, hang on. Wait, wait. Are you Chris Cox or am I Chris Cox? I, what? Hang on. I thought we were both Chris Cox. Wait a minute. Something isn't right here. I don't think either one of us is Chris Cox. No! How can we possibly do this show? Oh, right, by pushing the start button. Beer! Welcome and also hello. You've wandered foolishly into the realm of digital noise here on oneofus.net. This is the weekly Blu-ray and DVDs release show that blah 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 home media joke. I'm your host Brian Salisbury, also known as The Watcher, according to the big list posted down at the Austin Sheriff's Department. And I am joined this week not by Chris, but my, by my brother from another dimension, Mr. Richard Whitaker. Hey up. Hey up. Morning. Is that what British people say? They do around my parts. It's <laughs> It sounds like mostly vowels just falling out of your mouth. That is pretty much the north north of England, yes. That's what what we do. We don't don't really believe in consonants. We've taken a strict stand against consonants since we're not even part of the continent. (laughs) Way to go, England. That's us. So, uh, yeah, this is, of course, Digital Noise, and Chris could not join us this week, so both versions of Brian... Our, uh both dimensional versions of Brian are hosting. If we touch, do we explode? Uh, I think with it's like joy. With joy, yeah. it's like it's like Ron Silver in Time Cop, except with joy. Ah, which actually is what I feel when I watch Time Cop. Yeah, a lot of joy. Fun film. I want to remind you guys that Digital Noise is available on iTunes, so you can get more sparkling wit like that all the time. You can also find us on Stitcher. You can follow the show on Twitter at Digi Noisecast. It's D I G I Noisecast. You can also follow the whole website at One of Us Net. And you can like the website on Facebook, facebook.com slash oneofusnet. And I want to remind you guys, we're still collecting donations for uh, a fan of ours named Eli, who is uh, in dire straits right now. So if you have a few extra dimes to give, there's a little link button right underneath the bottom of the post. We really appreciate that. And if you like what we do, please consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net. It really does help us keep the lights on and keep delivering great content to you. And we've got lots of bonus content that is just for subscribers. And more of that is going to be dropping into the subscriber section of the forums in just a few moments. But for now, it's time to reach out into the Innisfere and receive transmissions from you, the listener. It's the part of the show where we crack open the most questionable of coffers we call... got mail 
Yes, thank you, Torgo. The letterbox. Our first question this week comes from Juan Rico. What are some of the best background scares in horror movies? This is a good question oh, because is. because anymore horror has become mostly about the jump scare, about the thing kind of leaping at the screen, or the fake out scare where it's like a cat leaping at the screen, or somebody standing harmlessly behind the refrigerator door, which is my I hate that. Uh, I hate that one so, so much. Uh, I'm gonna have to go with Alien. Ooh. Uh, at the moment where Harry Dean Stanton is looking for Jonesy, uh-huh. and there's just that moment where you just see something utterly inhuman and seemingly ungeometric just unfurl behind him and drop yeah. to the floor. No, it's the first time you get a full shot of the alien, but it's right. out of focus and you you can't process what it is because of his limbs and tail and head and it's just well, weird. And he's also in the bowels of the ship, so they, they do a great job of kind of setting you up to think that maybe it's some kind of hanging wire or uh, a pipe or something. And then as it keeps unfurling, it's like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit, turn around, damn it. There's so much of it. That's yeah. what's that, it's, it, that I think that that stands as, as the best example I can think of. I'm not a huge fan of this movie that I'm about to mention, but it does have one of the greatest background moments of creepy that I've ever seen. Uh, it's the movie Inside, which uh, is a French horror film about a woman who is being stalked. Uh, it's a pregnant woman who's being stalked by a woman whose child has died. And the woman wants to forcibly remove the baby from the other woman and kidnap it. And there's just a scene where... Uh, our, our besieged heroine is sitting in her living room and it's all dark except for some candlelight. And then in the kind of the foyer behind her, you just see this woman appear in the doorway in shadow and then fade out. No, there's like, there's no music cue. The woman doesn't turn around and see her and scream and run. She's just there. And then she's not. And it's so eerie and so effective. And it really makes the entire movie worth watching in Mm -hmm. my estimation. Yeah. So, yes. Good choice, sir. Good, good question. I really like that question. Uh, because, you know, it's one of those things that, like, one of the reasons I really like John Carpenter is John Carpenter does a lot of background scares, or, or used to at least. Uh, and he was all about stillness. Like the, the shape standing across the yard in Halloween, or uh, the ghosts in the church at the end of the fog, or even the gang standing outside the police station in Assault on Precinct 13 was all about the unsettling stillness. Yep. Which is the title of my autobiography. <laughs> Also, your rap sheet. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Our next question comes from Dan Shaparo, who asks, Pop quiz, hotshot. If a train leaves Dallas at 5 p.m. going 15 miles an hour and another train leaves Fort Worth at 7 p.m. going 20 miles per hour, then which movies from Robin Williams' catalog of work should get the Criterion approach with content? Ooh. Also, can I just point out that if your train is only going 15 and 20 miles an hour, you're never fucking getting anywhere. <laughs> Well, it's not laugh, far from Dallas to Fort Worth. Well, still, like that's that's going to make it a six-hour trip. You know, they'll probably, no, somewhere, they'll probably meet somewhere on the airport just in time for tea. <laughs> You're perfect. Um, I think you and I are going to have the same answer on this. Oh, what, what are you going to say? Uh, mine's going to be Death to Smoochie. I think Death to Smoochie deserves a Criterion release. Yeah, right, fucking meow. That is a phenomenal movie that nobody got at the time. No, because everybody was like. What is this? I don't. I don't get it. It's it's about guys in in big suits being animals and TV hosts being assholes. It's like yeah, that's the entire <laughs> point. Uh, you know, proof that Danny DeVito is just a, a great and underrated director. And, I think, and, and that a was the sick moment, human being. <laughs> that was the moment where you realized like he'd stopped being kind of the cuddly guy from eighties comedies mm-hmm. and was going to be the guy that was going to really push it's it's always sunny in Philadelphia right. into true cult status and into making it really the show that it is and the one we love. Um, yeah, I, I gotta go with that. Um, 
one that actually Criterion may have done, but it's it's a kind of forgotten um, Robin Williams role, and he's not really the lead, but he's so good in it. Uh, Insomnia. Oh yes, which is a very well, un- it's the, a weirdly underrated uh, Pacino film. I, they, I don't know why people don't like it as much as they should, but and he, uh, yeah, Williams is so good. They I put also- out the original on the Criterion Collection, the original Insomnia, uh, which was uh, help me who directed uh, the original. Uh, it's somebody we know who now I cannot remember. Oh, brain fart. Uh, but it's I'll uh, dance and distract the audience while you look at it. Oh, it's not the director that we know. It's it's the fact that it starred Stellan Skarsgård. Ah, that's yes. what it was. Okay, yeah, uh, makes me feel a little bit better. Um, I, yeah, there's so many. I mean, so many of his films were were it's great films that need it, it, tragically need reappraisal because I think people forget how prolific he was as well, an actor. And it's funny that we have both latched on to movies in his sort of dark trilogy. Yeah. You know, with Death to Smoochie, Insomnia, and One Hour Photo. One Hour Photo is, yeah, that's I another think, one. Is One Hour Photo, One Hour Photo might already have a Criterion release. If it doesn't, I, it should. I, or at least I think it might be on the way. I think that's one that they are actually, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look this up just to be sure, but I think I, if I remember correctly, that's one of the ones that they were like, yeah, that's that's coming out on uh, on credit. I must be wrong, but the point is, it needs to be. Uh, <laughs> and there's, there's a lot of people are going to make uh, the the argument for Popeye. I, I, it's not. I, I don't actually enjoy that as a film. No one does. Of, oh no, I lo- know lots of people who love it as a film, but it, it's, no. it. My problem, I think, as much as anything else, is a. It looks like it was shot through two inches of mud on the lens, mm-hmm. uh, and b. I hate Altman's um, sound mix because yeah. Altman doesn't believe you should be able to hear what people are saying. He's too naturalistic, and in a show, particularly in a film like that, which yeah, is, is which is works crazy. really well when you have Elliot Gould and you're doing the long goodbye, and you've got this sort of muttery uh, detective who talks to himself. In lieu of the uh, traditional overbearing uh, narration that you would get in film noir. I get that. I get that in The Long Goodbye. But in most films, you kind of need to know what the characters are saying. It's the same problem with Terry Gilliam. They use the same sound mix and drives drives me mad. And I'm, I great, get that they're auteurs and they're great visualists, but they they need to have the sound mix taken away from them yeah. <laughs> at all times because you can't work out what the hell I'd be saying. What do, what do you think of Brazil? I I think Brazil is brilliant and of its time. Um, And I still think there's some weird bits of it that I just go... Why exactly is De Niro here? And it like there's but there's some stuff that's great and there's and it's very British. Um, So you're not head over heels in love with it. I I like it a lot. Um, I don't think it's the greatest film in anybody's in anybody's back half. I'm still trying to find. I don't like that movie particularly much. I think it's I think it's a beautiful movie. I think it's got some interesting things to say, and I think it's just muddled by uh, a filmmaker letting his direction his his imagination run a little too wild. Which is Terry Gilliam all over. Which I understand, and it works for some of his movies, but I feel like in that one it just doesn't. And I have I have been told basically that I am a heretic and will be Gilliam, stoned out of town. Gilliam's problem for a long time has been that he didn't have to contend with massive egos because people would say, "Oh, you're Terry Gilliam, you're right." Whereas mm. in Monty Python, part of the reason his stuff worked so well was he actually had arguably had the smallest ego there, which is. Kind of hard work, but he had other people saying no, stop, and he's not had that. I don't think it's an entire directing career post Jabberwocky. Mm-hmm. That was one sentence. I yes, it was. Breath towards the end. Yes, it was. Should we move on to the next question? I think we should go ahead and move on to reviews and remind you that just like every week, we will have images for all of the films that we discuss. If you click on that image, it'll take you to Amazon. Even if you don't buy that particular movie, if you get to Amazon via that link, anything you buy at that point. 
benefits the site. So please consider doing that. We really do appreciate it. Woohoo! And we're going to start this week with... What? Pardon? I'm sorry. I thought I was in a Robert Altman film. The <laughs> oh. Quiet Ones is what we're starting with this week. John Pogue's The Quiet Ones. Um, This came out and yes, was seen by people. Moving on. Uh, <laughs> no. I... All right, so I love a good I love a good ghost story. I love Jared Harris. There are so many things about this movie that should have made it. It, it had kind of that neo uh, hammer vibe to it. it. You know, I was actually was this. Re- I don't think this was released. Was this? Yes, it was released yeah, by Hammer. Yeah, it is actually Hammer. So it it absolutely was like okay, setting up to be this movie that I was really going to enjoy, and then it was just kind of. Meh. Yeah, I don't know. What what was your take on this, Richard? Uh, well, this is Hammer trying to resurrect its its glory days of oddball supernatural possession movies, which actually accounted for a far bigger chunk of its output than the than the you know, Frankenstein Dracula ones that everybody remembers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically a bunch of academic researchers think that they can prove that. Uh, uh, Possession is merely telekinetic powers expressed through uh, uh, depression. Uh, that's that's my favorite part really... of this movie is that they are scoffing at the idea of the supernatural when really it's just telekinetic powers. Which was actually very <laughs> like, so 60s. you don't believe in the supernatural because it's really just the supernatural. But it's very 60s, 70s approach to things, and they're going, oh, we're going to document this, and then we're going to cure this girl of being of being what she thinks is possessed, but we think she's just sad. Mm-hmm. Uh, clearly, this is not going to end well for anybody because nope. even if, even if it's not the uh, the devil, she's basically you know, a cast member of the Fury. This is, <laughs> it's, and it, it's found footage, so yeah, it, and it yeah, but it's def- set in the 70s. Yeah, which kind of still you can make work, but they don't because it doesn't really look like 70s footage. At all. At all. It's in high definition. There is no way a camera in the 70s shoots like that. Yeah, it it should be grainier. It should be drearier. The characters are all pretty much the the out of the same cookie cutter. There's the uh, professor who's kind of banging everybody, uh, yeah. which is what's his face from Mad Men. Um, <laughs> the, uh, there's the, the vaguely slu- slutty um, uh, research assistant uh, who is doing everyone, uh, which is kind of terrible casting. Yeah, this is uh, this is less a haunted house movie and more a key party. Yeah, with ghosts. Um, and you know, they, it's like the instant they end up in the in the mysterious haunted, previously haunted house that was run by a demonic cult. Of all the places, this is the dumbest place to go to do demonic research. Since Deep Blue Sea went, hey, let's do shark research in the middle of the sea. No, you do it in Iowa. I still, <laughs> yes, no, I agree with you there. I still maintain though that Deep Blue Sea is a better film if you watch it from the shark's perspective because then it's the greatest prison escape movie you've ever seen, <laughs> or as I call it, the Shark Tank Redemption. Or, or that beautiful, you know, just freeze frame on that moment where Samuel L. Jackson gets eaten and you can see him go, ah, done, I'm out of here. <laughs> Uh, no, this is it, this isn't the worst film that's been released of this kind. But at the moment, there's so many really good demonic possession movies and supernatural movies. And when you've got things like The Conjuring, which basically does the same thing so much better, yeah, yeah, it's like, well, okay, they've got English accents. Um, and they do, got, do they or do they not have English accents? They do. There you go. Uh, and they've every single plot twist is visible fifteen miles away. True. Very this true. is very 
nothing. It's workmanlike. And, and you know, there's room in the world for work, workmanlike supernatural horrors, particularly period stuff. If you like people wandering around haunted houses in go-go boots, fine. This is absolutely for you, but I'm not... It wasn't for me. And I, I was kind of disappointed. I, I hope for a lot more from this film. I, I really think that's the, the biggest problem with this film is that it doesn't have James Wan's name in the director yeah. column. Um, but yeah, I, you know... It wants to touch on new ideas. It wants to explore new avenues with ghosts and with possession. And unfortunately, it can't solidify anything. It can't solidify any of those ideas into something uh, that that translates to the screen. And also, I, I don't understand. There's like this cult aspect that they try to throw in. Like maybe this teacher is starting his own cult. But the way that they decide to tell that to us is that... One student at the library confronts one of the researchers like, oh, you've been indoctrinated by the quiet ones. And no one fucking explains what that is or what it means. Nope. Goes away completely. And no one knows why this one student is the only person who thinks that this teacher is involved in whatever the quiet one. So the title itself is never fucking explained. Nope. At any point. You have to work it out for yourself. And then when you do, you go, well, that's not very interesting. It was, I guarantee you, they got to the end of shooting and went, oh, wait. We never talked about what the quiet ones was. We never oh, talked about the title. Here's here's a we pick- don't have a title. Shoot we'll do, a scene. Yeah, we'll do a pickup shot of uh, a student at the library yelling, "You've been indoctrinated in the quiet ones." Are we going to explain that later? Nah, nah, they won't care by that point. Nah, I just yeah, I just found it at its worst very boring, and at its best average. Speaking of bad supernatural films. <laughs> oh. Whoop, 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 whoop. Sorry, is that is that the Wayans alarm going on? Oh, oh my god. god. I didn't watch this piece of trash, so I'm going to let you take oh, the reins this on this one. this is A Haunted House 2, the sequel to the unfathomably successful A Haunted House. <laughs> because at some point, the Wayans brothers were wandering through the last remaining blockbuster in LA and went, I don't know, what are we going to do a lame spoof of now? Uh, paranormal activity? Uh, okay. We may as well. We can, you know, because we can do that, and then we can throw in a couple of exorcist jokes because, you know, they're not burned out or or anything. This is the alleged sequel. So wait, 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 wait. wait. So they're they're making fun of all these things that people have already made fun of, and then they did a sequel to a film that was past its prime and only had the things to make fun of that other people have already made fun of. And it's even worse than the first. Oh, Oh, yes, Marlon Wayans turns up and his. Uh, demonically possessed girlfriend from the first film is now conveniently dead so now they've managed to hire Jamie Presley because you know seemingly because she I, wasn't busy yeah that that afternoon um, <laughs> uh, you know this this in the same way the first one spoofed paranormal activity mm. this one is a lazy lazy and pretty vulgar and i like broad comedy i you know i have no problem with no I, i've heard, with I've heard I mean, your jokes on this show yeah that's you've heard my sense of humor and i'm like <laughs> oh really we're, we're doing this there is a sequence it is about five minutes long a montage of, uh, of marlon wayans having sex uh with annabelle the doll from the conjuring Oh, that's uh, including, hilarious. Um, it would have been funny for like a minute, maybe, possibly. <laughs> but it's like five years. It's like the extended cut of Lord of the Rings long of him. <laughs> At one point, he, actu- he actually uh, 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 tosses her salad. Um, oh, come really on. Like, Marlon, Are you serious? Nope. 
I am absolutely serious. Oh. And there's, I, I just want Damon to just come along, the, by, come along the set one day and go, Marlon, think about mum. <laughs> Do does she really need to to see this i think the only reason they did that scene is so they could have a a similar simulated sex scene uh between marlon wayans and jamie presley uh this is just boring and it's stupid and it's insulting and cedric the entertainer turns up and is as bad as he is in everything see, else i want him to be forced legally to change his name Cedric the not very entertaining. Cedric the the passably entertaining sometimes, but usually not. Cedric the tedium. Um, <laughs> and he turns up as the priest again, and this is just like, oh, you're going to be loud and and make a couple of crude jokes. And I'm like, it's, you know, it's just, and I when I say crude, I don't mean that they're rude or offensive. I just mean that they're really badly formed. These are jokes <laughs> that were carved uh out of out of raw flint right. uh using only a pillow they're These, just they're just pouring primordial soup on the ground and going is this a joke is yet this is a this joke a joke yet? do you like us yet uh <laughs> the and, and the the saddest thing in here uh is gabriel iglesias yes he of the fluffiness himself oh for god's I, sake i actually you know i i kind of like him you know he has his shtick it's pretty entertaining uh he you know he, he's okay here he plays the Mexican neighbor. And that is really his part, is he is the Mexican neighbor. And there's him and Marlon Wayans will just say horrible racial stereotypes about each other. And then they'll get upset and they'll go, yeah, but it's true. So, you know, wow. he, ha he actually has a landscaping business. Yes. Um, and he has a tricked out car. Yes, which he has all his... And it's like every stereotype possible. I'm like, okay, we get it. But they do this joke about 50 times. Jesus <laughs> and it's like, Christ. This is just... It, the fact that this is 100 minutes long and has no business being that long. At 70 minutes, I think I could have excused its existence just about. Uh, <laughs> I think the version that's going to turn up on, on um, the FX network in a couple of years' time when they have to take everything that they can't put in <laughs> because it's like there's actually a point where a penis appears from out of somebody's throat going, and, and the joke is, oh, it was a lot easier to swallow going down. And I'm like, oh, really? really? This is just, it's just clumsy and stupid, and the Wayans brothers need to stop being given money to make films. Hey, but Richard, according to Latino Review, this is over-the-top hilarious. Well, Latino Review are wrong. Also, okay, I, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to point out that both of the outlets quoted on the back of the box... Oh, Latino Review. Are, there's, no, there's Latino Scoop and Latino Review. Literally. Oh, and Sean Edwards because he's a quote whore, just like just like Peter Travers. This the, nothing nothing should happen with this film other than incineration. You guys want to play a fun game? Watch every movie TV spot you ever see and look for one of two names: Sean Edwards of Fox TV and Peter Travers of Rolling Stone, because those guys will say the same five words about every movie to make sure that their name gets on that trailer. Spec Clear. <laughs> Explosive dynamite entertainment. Blurg and blurg and blurg and blurg. Idiots. Uh, I want to let you know that this Blu-ray does have deleted and extended scenes. So oh, God, there's a longer edit of this film. Enjoy that. And then uh, a commentary where the where the Wayans involved here, was it where Marlon Wayans basically likes to hear himself talk some more. So enjoy that. If you like the first one, you will might see this. That's as far as I'm willing to, to go here. <laughs> if you like this, you should have your ticket buying privileges removed. <laughs> 
So this is not going to be Richard's pick of the week. Nope. That's pretty sure. Nope. Now I'm wondering if maybe our next film. There is a that we. You know what? It's a big week for supernatural horror. We are running the gamut of shit supernatural horror this week. Okay, this the one. Quiet, the, both of the. I'm going to say the movie we're about to talk about and Haunted House Two make the quiet ones look like Rosemary's Baby. We may diverge a little. bit. Really? We may. We may Holy diverge shit. a little bit on this one. Uh, the Midnight Game. Uh, which is a super low-budget horror. It's basically taken from... Uh, you, you are aware, I presume, of the concept of the creepypasta. The creepypasta? The creepypasta is basically kind of this... It's this this interwebs thing. Uh, oh, creepypasta. I'm yeah. sorry, I couldn't tell what you were saying with your fancy British talk. Push up, heathen. Um, <laughs> yeah, this, this... I'm aware of creepypasta, and also, here's... I figured that that was kind of the... Okay, say so the basis of this movie is that you have a guy who watches a YouTube video uh, where people are playing this thing called the Midnight Game, and it's supposed to conjure up a ghost, and the YouTube video ends with a big jump scare, like most YouTube videos do when they're made by douchebags. Um, so they he decides to get together with some of his friends, his, his best friend and then three girls, and they're going to play this Midnight Game. And they're going to summon... They're going to summon the Midnight Man... Living in his midnight land, and they're all going to play the midnight game, and it is really midnight lame. But the thing is, I got the sense that it was being based on kind of the same area as the Slender Man, because it has that sort of, it was something that came from online. And I think immediately, and this is not the movie's fault, but I'm just going to point this out, immediately that kind of took me out of it, because I'm like... Yeah, but that's also the thing that just caused a uh, a bunch of high school girls to stab one of their classmates nineteen times. No, I think that was just them being scumbags. No, no, I no, you're absolutely you know. right. I, you're absolutely right. I don't mean to blame Creepypasta for that, but the fact that it was sort of at the heart of it, it took all the entertainment value out of it's, it to be it's like bad it's coming timing. I know it's bad timing. That's basically all I'm saying. But it's also a bad movie. I, it this is this is very low budget. This is yeah. There's one and low talent. Yeah, it's it's not. It's nothing. Basically, there's nothing obviously going for it. This is one of these things that you know is going to like emit onto um, onto DVD. Nobody's going to do a Blu-ray of this. I'm telling you that now, folks. Right. Um, I had fun with it. It's not great. It's got a lot of heart, which I will. Uh, it's got. It shows Moxie. Um, <laughs> uh, it's got. You know, it's it's kind of eerie in the right places it's jump scares of which it's got a few are technically handled but it has this nice idea that kind of floats through of you know if you are while in the time when you're in the sway of the midnight man time kind of dilates and loops back on itself and it actually handles that in kind of an interesting way and when they start turning on each other they turn on each other in a way that is accurate for douchebag college students so that actually felt right it's like oh no this is how they will fuck each other up and that actually felt okay it's not great it's fun it's it's you know entertaining drivel um you know and it does have one really really good practical effect uh which is obviously done by a small effects house and actually is really kind of you're talking about the monster itself. there is a monster which turns up and it's actually yeah. i was like oh that's actually pretty good yeah this is this is not gonna you know hit any top 10 lists but you know in the world of you know people like you know production houses like chemical burn i think this is actually not a bad little addition it, it's not gonna it, you know this is yeah quiet ones is technically is at all levels a better film it's still not great uh, but in, yeah, and it's, this isn't something as adventurous with the concept of the creepypasta stuff as, say, Marble Hornets, you know, which is, you know, 
Which great still creeps ex- me out. Oh yeah, I mean, those things were amazing. The, but you know, as a kind even of, though I know, think they're on episode five hundred and forty now. Yeah, it's like just admit who it is. Uh, <laughs> it's Homer Simpson in a mask. Um, but yeah, you know, this is you know, it's not demanding. I, you know, it's an okay if you if you like kind of super low budget horrors with a lot of scares and you know one cheerleader and and one gothy girl and and the jock who turns out to be not as jockey as you thought. It's all the the cliches and stereotypes those characters but i think how it carries off with kind of you know low budget panache i'm okay with it my problem is well first of all thank you for being for proving once again the generosity and the politeness of the uk Uh, we try and then we invade you you you, you're just like finding every nice thing possible to say about this movie and i respect that i think it's possibly because you didn't sit through a haunted house too i did if you had i think that (laughs) maybe by comparison tolerance (laughs) you become a much more forgiving human being or take up a killing spree. See, that that may be the nicest thing anyone said about a haunted house, too, is it'll make you a more forgiving human <laughs> being. <laughs> Put that on the poster, latinolatines.com, <laughs> uh, which is actually a website made by uh, teenagers in L.A. who happen to be Latino. Yep. Latinolatines.com. Yeah. Come on, why is no one making that website? Anyway. <laughs> they are now. Or if they are, it's probably one of the Brazzers offshoots. <laughs> anyway, uh, my, problem, my problems here are twofold. One of which being... The way that they show that these teenagers are in the sort of in the influence of uh, the Midnight Man is that they get real bitchy and then they start talking like blithering idiots and then they see themselves and it's like okay so they're hormonal and narcissistic they're not actually under any supernatural influence they're just fucking teenagers yeah I'm like I was like am I supposed to be creeped out by what all teenagers do all the and it's not in a way that's like oh but we're going to you know subtextually say something about it's like no you just couldn't think of anything more interesting to do to demonstrate to the audience that something weird is going on and then the ending is like a russian nesting doll and it doesn't fit like there's one or two missing and yet you keep pulling back um you know you get to the ending which is the twist I found really kind of contrived and and silly and then they pull back from that to something else going on that just like okay look you went from silly to completely incomprehensible Mm-mm. by that one last pullback and you I think you know what I mean yeah because it's like they set up here's the twist ending oh and then there's a pullback where it's like okay now it's just uh the portrait of the guy painting the portrait of the guy painting the portrait of a terrible horror film <laughs> um so yeah no I I couldn't find anything I will agree with you that the monster effects are good yeah that's about the only good thing I can say about this movie, though. Fair enough. So, Midnight Man, Midnight Game, whatever this is called. And check out that cover where it's, like, the producer's niece, uh, who's kind of gothy, sitting in a circle. It is It is just such a... Even the cover is boring. Yeah. Oh. It's very generic. Generic. <laughs> the generiest movie you'll ever see. I think you may have suffered from a case of... Boredom. boredom which is the next movie we're going to talk about a great segue yeah it looks smooth the alternate universe version of me is much better at segues than the regular universe version of me which is to say me what happened to those four wheel segues i don't and now i've gone off track so like back to boredom uh- i i completely retract what i said about you in segues hey yay so boredom, boredom. what's that all about richard boredom Oh, okay. It is actually, moving on. It oh. is actually a a a documentary about uh, boredom. Are uh, you serious? Yeah, uh, it's from the people over at Disinformation. Who? Okay, it- this sounds as okay. All right. So I once I want I want to tell you a quick story. I once watched a three hour documentary about monks. 
I was in Columbia, Missouri, and I was at the Ragtag Theater, which is a great Yay! theater. And it, a lot of our shout out to my shout out to my uh, my Ragtag homies. There you go. A lot of the the critics here in town, a lot of the visiting filmmakers, talk about how great the Ragtag is, and it is a great theater. It's like if somebody built the Alamo Draft House in their basement, because uh, it's really just it's a bar. You go through a curtain, and there's a bunch of couches and a movie screen. It is about as lo-fi as it gets, but it's a really great atmosphere. That being said, the only movie I've ever seen there was a three-hour documentary about monks who had taken a vow of silence. <laughs> so there is no – the only sound during the whole movie is like the occasional background Gregorian chant. And somehow I stayed awake through 95% of this movie. That sounds – I once saw this, this uh, Thai movie about uh, some people who found a mattress. That was the plot. <laughs> they found a mattress. <laughs> Um, whereas boredom, the documentary, is actually kind of interesting. Uh, it, what is the Thai word for we need to furnish this apartment? <laughs> I don't know. I think it was like, huh, and a shrug. <laughs> um, <laughs> back to the film. Back to the film we're talking about. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, this is from the folks over at Disinformation, um, who've done, over the years done a great series of, of uh, books like Everything You Know Is Wrong, where they basically try and rewrite your ideas about stuff. Um, and this is basically this guy did went, why don't we talk about boredom or what boredom is? And, you know, there's a there's surprisingly little research done into boredom. You know, people do have done huge amounts of research into things like depression or happiness. But, you know, they haven't talked about boredom, which a lot of people are all the, a lot of the time. And, and the basic argument is that uh, modern life has actually got more and more boring and that people are overstimulated, and that doesn't actually help you. Um, and it means that when you lose your phone, which Brian's now playing with, as if, no, to, I'm not. As if to prove my point. No, not um, at all. You know, it, and that's the, the, the key moment is when the guy goes, well, I lost my phone, and I was like, I'm bored. And then he suddenly realized, like, you know, if I'd have lost my phone 20 years ago before I had this thing to play with all the time, I would mm -hmm. have gone, oh, look out the window, I'll go for a walk. Uh, why are we becoming more... Outside? I know. In the are day you day. a madman? <laughs> I know. Um, you know you're British. You burn very easily. I'm melting. But uh, <laughs> this whole idea of, uh, you know, and, and it's kind of a, it, just an interesting take on, you know, what this thing that happens to us all is and why we don't explore it more, why we don't discuss how we deal with boredom. And it's not necessarily de just doing more stuff. It's about making that stuff work. And you know some some like weird little obvious fixes like it turns out you will get less bored if you stand up more what and this is weird things it's like on, you're, you're doing the same thing and you sat down or you're the same thing and you're stood up and there's like it's to do with blood flow which parts of the brain is uh, uh, stimulates and you kind of go how why did i why was i never told this i do, this I do feel more exciting right now <laughs> You look more excited. Yes. That's just your uh, different bits of your eye level. Um, <laughs> My C. Wayans brother, Brothers, I can go crude too. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, this is, you know, it's about a 70-minute little doc uh, just about this one theme. And it's, it's, it's one of these ones that, like, everything disinformation does, you kind of dip into and go, huh, I didn't know that. This isn't going to win any Oscars. It's not going to win any major awards. But it really is kind of like... Ah, I do appreciate. I do appreciate the fact that they kept their documentary about boredom to seventy minutes. Yeah, <laughs> it is a compact little film for fear of losing their audience yeah. to boredom. <laughs> well, this is you know that's disinformation all over. I mean, I, I'm a I'm a big fan fan of their work because I think they've done some great books over the years that really make you just go, huh. 
hang on, I, I've just viewed something from a different vo- uh, different standpoint over the years, and I really should reconsider my position on on something, or like little bits of evidence, like they they did some really good stuff on on pulling together the files that said there was a third shooter at Columbine, and nobody ever went after them. We went, well, all you know, and and just all these kind of interesting how do we rewrite. And get people to think about rewriting history. Get mm-hmm. people to, to, to look at facts and evidence. And this is what this does. It just does it about a theme that you've never necessarily heard about because you, it, it's something that happens all the time. It even talks about the origin of the word. And I'm like, this is kind of fun. This is like a 60-minute lecture, and I'm kind of like, oh, walk away at the end of the day. I feel I learned something. They might solve a mystery. They might rewrite history. Oh, Tuck tales. Yes. Oh. That was well, never boring. Hey, Tell us it was awesome. Speaking of boredom, uh-huh. Locke is another movie we're going to talk about this week. And, you know, earlier I said that Cedric the Entertainer should change his name because it's just flagrant false advertising. I'd like to read you a couple of the quotes uh, from the front box here of the Blu-ray and digital HD release of Locke, which is certified fresh by Rotten Tomatoes, which is the thing they've started putting on DVDs that I um, wish they fucking wouldn't. That is just heresy. Just wrong. Rotten Tomatoes is one of these things that I'm like, so you can go through, pull out a quote that, in a review which is generally negative, where they go, well, you know, catering was nice, um, and suddenly <laughs> just become certified fresh. And I'm like, no. Or this weird critical consensus that, like, you know, 20 of the biggest bozos in town go, which is wonderful. And the one person who actually knows what they're talking about goes, no, this was drivel. It doesn't suddenly make the film wonderful. It, you know, it's still drivel. So, uh, yeah, let's, Rotten Tomatoes well, is just... Let, let's see if you can pick uh, out who the uh, people are who know anything or the people that say things like, Tom Hardy is explosive and flat-out thrilling a po- or a powerhouse of suspense and fierce emotion. There is no suspense in this movie. There is nothing thrilling about this movie. This is literally... Here's the plot of this film. And I'm not simplifying it. I'm not exaggerating for comedic effect. Tom Hardy sits in a car and drives for 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. That is it. There are no other characters. There is no car crash. He sits in a car and talks on his phone for 90 minutes. End of movie. And it's wonderful. I completely disagree. I could not disagree more. Just get this one out of your system, and I'll I'll come in and correct you in a moment. Look, I am not a complete simpleton. I am not a... Complete, no. No. I'm also not a Neanderthal who needs action all the time. I completely understand the metaphor here. I understand... So, basically, he is... He he works in the concrete industry. Basically, he's a he's a construction worker who runs this firm that is sort of in the UK is sort of the biggest uh, concrete laying firm in the in the nation, and they have their biggest project coming up. And wouldn't you know it, the the night before his biggest project is supposed to happen, he gets a call from a woman, uh, not his wife, that he slept with uh, a while ago, who is now pregnant and giving birth to his illegitimate child. So he is driving to the hospital to be with her. So he's trying to deal with on the phone the things that are going wrong with the business and i'm pretty sure the voice at the other end of the phone is chris o'dowd right i think it is it sounds exactly like chris o'dowd if it's not uh no it's andrew scott uh and then he also has to call his wife and tell her look i have been unfaithful and so his life is basically falling apart and i understand the reason that they spend so much time talking about concrete and why they've chosen the profession for him Concrete is what you use to lay a foundation, and when you build a building, it is assumed, it is one of those naturally assumed things that buildings are mainstays, or things that are going to be uh, structures that are going to be there for a long time, when in fact, everything can and, and does eventually come crumbling down, and that's kind of the overall metaphor of this movie, and unfortunately, that's all there is to this movie. Like, even Tom Hardy, who has to carry the movie on his shoulders, refuses 
to raise his emotional level above uh, a, a slight tickling. Well, whereas the I, this is a, a character study, and it's I just not found interesting a character. But I, I but I, I, yeah, I, I thought it was. I, I found it fascinating because it's about the kind of character you you never see. You know, this guy is just. He is a, an engineer. He is just wants to do this one thing, and, he's, and it's basically about examining why he has this emotional need to try and stabilize everything, to make everything in the world right, to have it become. You know, it, he's a very quiet control freak, uh, and they, they to bring lay up, the solid foundations. Yeah, because and, and there's long conversations with his father, and that's where his anger comes in. It's like his absent father, and he doesn't want to be the guy that walks out on his kids, and he basically thinks that he can put the whole world together, and he's forced to make a choice, and it does that very quietly. That he says at some point he has to make a choice about what he's going to do, and he wants to do everything, and it can't be done. Uh, this really reminds me of back in the UK, uh, we had a, uh, a long-running TV series called uh, Play for Today, um, which was you know, basically the uh, scum actually was comes out of that kind of tradition. <laughs> the uh, the great uh, people having a horrible time in British prison movies, um, <laughs> and, and it really feels it fits into that tradition of you know these kind of intimate character studies. About one person at a moment in there. Yeah, they, they really are plays. And this feels like a play. And you can imagine this is a one-man show at the Edinburgh Festival or on the West End. Uh, you know, of, of Tom Hardy just sat there talking to, to voices out of the ether. It has that feel. Um, I think it, a lot of it's to do with your tolerance for that much of an obviously theatrical concept transcribed uh and i think for me it worked i think it worked a lot better than it did for you and i think it is a purely a personal emotional response i think it you know it's uh, i you know i really was spellbound by this the idea that there's an explosive performance that's the whole point is it's not explosive. it's the this complete is, opposite this is a guy who is basically just does not under you know this is that's like saying a rock is explosive it's not a rock sits there and and you know it does what it you know it, it is itself and that's the whole point about him but where's He's, the suspense where is the suspense in this film is what i would like to know the suspense is, is really about you know what decision does he finally make and it's about how does he it's not even about suspense it's about how does he deal with the fact that he's tried to you know make sure that he has everything and it's impossible and then it's not a, about the suspense per se it's about that moment where he goes i have to make a decision do i go to this this illegitimate child who as he said it you know it's my i made this is my responsibility um or you know or does he go back to his previous responsibility and it's about him trying to say how can you know wanting to be responsible for everything and there's a certain point where he goes i can't well, and it's, it's what, but, you know, it, and it's what does he do at that moment? But this is that decision is made so early in the film that if you're really calling it a suspense film, it would be like watching Hitchcock's Rope, and then ten minutes into the party, one of the guys goes, "Oh, by the way, there's a body in the trunk." The end. But he, but the thing is, he doesn't. You know, he the decision is made, but he doesn't realize he's made that decision, and that's that's what it, it's about. Him coming to terms with the fact that, like, oh no, he made his he made his decision a long time ago, and he thinks he didn't. He thinks he can have it all, and he it's that moment where he goes oh no i can't i made it i made my choice and i actually have to live with that choice now and there's nothing i can do about that because everything's in place and i can't be in denial anymore and it's it's not about you know a change it's about a moment of personal understanding you know it, the it, and it's it's a very quiet intimate personal film that you know i really enjoyed and you know i would happily rewatch, and i really get the feeling you wouldn't i would i would not yeah. I, I feel like this movie is ankle deep in both narrative and emotional depth and I just I feel like it's 
it's it's striving for something that either Tom Hardy's performance isn't delivering or the script isn't delivering because by the time it got to the end, I was like, "You're seriously not going to end this on this, right?" I I wasted ninety minutes of my time for a, honestly, his life is changing around him, but I don't feel that that character has changed but at all from start to finish. So what I've basically done is watch Tom Hardy go for a delightful jaunt for ninety minutes <laughs> in his tiny car, talking on his Bluetooth. And meanwhile, I'm behind him going, get out of the fast lane! Oh, he's talking on his phone. Of course he is. Oh, God, that's Bane. Keep driving. Yep. <laughs> so that's that, That's basically my interpretation of the movie Locke. So you can do with that what you will. You know what we haven't been doing, I should probably tell you, is that this has uh, Ordinary Unraveling, Making of Locke, featurette, and audio commentary with Stephen Knight, hopefully apologizing. Um, and that's it. That's the, uh, those are, that's the breadth of the... Uh, Special features here, but you do get the uh, the digital HD as well as the Blu-ray, so awesome. Moving on from there, we're going to talk uh, about a film that I did not get a chance to see, but I know Richard did, and that is Swelter, which is an appropriate title for August in Austin. Austin. Well, this is also the polar opposite uh, <laughs> of Locke. So this is uh, the stock and the two smoking barrels. This, this is this is lots of, of bang and sizzle and nastiness. Uh, basically, Lenny James, yet again doing another splendid American accent, um, turns out is, is this sheriff in the real town of Baker in Arizona, okay. uh, which is home to the world's biggest thermometer <laughs> i been, love that you know this well because you know, there was a point where i was like you know, i'm sure i've been they're, they're going down the main street and i'm like i'm sure i've been there i'm sure I've, <laughs> you know. and then there's this long shot and there's this like huge structure in the background i'm like that's the thermometer in baker i've been there and it is the world's biggest thermometer um which uh they they turned off a while ago because the family went out of business who was running it and this was the only reason you'd go to baker uh and then recently the family who'd actually whose, whose grandfather originally built it you said this is in arizona right yeah so the world's biggest thermometer is just there to remind you even more clearly that it's ass crack hot in arizona yeah pretty much um <laughs> Uh, actually, maybe stupid. Nevada. I'm trying to remember. It's one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's, it's hot and I've been there. Um, yeah, so basically Lenny James is, is the, the sheriff, but he has amnesia because something happened 10 years ago and he doesn't know what it is, but now he's the sheriff. Because a man with amnesia and no records can obviously be... Also, the only black guy in this entire town is voted as sheriff. Yeah, no, that makes sense. The plausibility sense. gap here is like, how, uh, you know, how do they pay him? <laughs> what, what's on his w2 yeah what's what's his what's his social security number and uh yeah it, it, but you know he he's got the stereotypical friends like his uh his girlfriend who who is uh you know latina and wears white dresses all the time because you know straight from central casting seemingly. right right um his uh his best friend she has to go to confession every day the, there is a lot in church okay um then uh, you know his best friend is the dr- is the drunken town doctor played by alfred molina um <laughs> which is so funny that alfred molina now gets so many parts in a, in american uh, shows wait, as drunken latino wait, 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 guys wait. and it's like no he's a, he's a fat guy from london so when you say stereotypes you mean from from the show Deadwood, right? Yeah, pretty like much. Like, Doc comes in all drunk on whiskey. <laughs> I've been drinking fire water. I'm going to amputate your leg. You yeah, got pretty- a case of the gangrene. But at the same time, there's this gang which is kind of gang driving green. towards the, uh, them, and they really look like, you know, Reservoir Dogs. There's, there's kind of a, still a Reservoir Dogs thing um, going on here. Um, with uh, It's Grant Bowler from uh, uh, Sci-Fi's Defiance, who is 
spectacular in this uh as kind of grumbly kind of morally conflicted uh gangster who doesn't mind shooting people but just wants to make sure they're the right people uh rob uh, uh, jean-claude van damme turns up uh says nothing uh but is kind of weirdly stylish and they're friends um and they they want to go and find lenny jane uh, lenny james's character because uh he seems to know something about money that they're missing and mysteriously he doesn't remember anything could these facts be connected yes mm. yes they very much are it's it's very clearly given away in about the first 10 minutes that oh hang on this good guy sheriff is not necessarily as much of a good guy as anybody as everybody else thought this is very prosaic. It's very by the numbers. And then you go, hang on. The reason it's by the numbers is because this is a good old-fashioned revenge western. Pure and simple. The, this is, you know, the black hats run into town and the white hat guy with the, with the dubious history has to go, you know, who am I? You know, really test myself. And it, it's kind of fun. Oh. It's it's I, I was in I ended up enjoying it a lot more than I expected. Uh Is Lenny James one of the the two uh diamond brokers from Snatch? Yes. Okay. That's, yep. I was like I know that name. He was also in the adaptation the unsuccessful adaptation of Low Winter Sun. He was oh, in Walking yeah. Dead, you know, he's mm-hmm. like it's, you know, he's you know, he's a solid character actor. I'm so surprised Low Winter Sun did not make it considering how much they advertised it during other shows, shows on AMC. Yeah. I think the I think the blowback from you know Breaking Bad's gone away. I'm going to hate whatever you give me to replace it. Was you know was just overbearing. Well, it wasn't even they didn't even let Breaking Bad die before they tried to shove Low Winter Sun down our throats. It was like we'd be in the middle of an episode like Hey, he hates interrupt, but you know Low Winter Sun's going to be on next. It's like shut up and go back to the show. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, the best thing about this is Grant Bowler. Hmm. Um, who is really good in Defiance, uh, which is, if you're not watching, is I think one of the best things on sci-fi at the moment, kind of building out big concept, um, post-apocalyptic SF in a really interesting way. Uh, here, he's kind of, you know, got this, you know, thuggish energy to him, and you're like, you know, he's a bad guy, but he's not the worst human being. Um, that kind of works surprisingly well. It's like Jack Palance in Shane. That's, that's basically... Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of Shane in here, and it huh. kind of works. I, it's, this is, you know... It's not great. I'm not going to say it's great. I have two but things. I was surprisingly entertained by it. Two things to say. First of all, I was watching Animaniacs last night, and I forgot that one of the early episodes, the little tag right before they dropped the uh, title card and the theme song is Dot going, come back, Shaney. And I'm like, a <laughs> Shane reference? <laughs> Kids will love that. Um, and then the other thing is that uh, a bad guy but not the worst person on the planet is pretty much our hiring criteria <laughs> for net. So uh, I, I'm all about – got to see this. Yeah. I'm going to watch this movie. It's, yeah, it's no great shakes. But if you go in and say this is a kind of mid-card Western and, you know – Nobody wear nobody wears a cowboy hat apart from the apart from the sheriff who at one point actually you know pulls his his shirt away to reveal his his badge. Mm-hmm. It's like it's and you go this is a western. This is an old school <laughs> western just updated in little ways. Mm-hmm. You know this you know they basically may as well have a, a crazy old prospector come out of the mountains and go there's gold in them there are hills. Ah, oh, it's John Claude Van Damme, Carn Sergeant, <laughs> who is he, totally inexplicable why he's in this film. Uh, he turns up and has like four lines. He's kind of charismatic and you go ah oh, and then. I, he I'm going to stop you right there. That ex- that just described the last ten John Clan Van Damme movies, with the exception of JCVD. Which, if you've not seen JCVD, it's then just, so good. Just pause this, go watch it, and come back. We'll be, we'll 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 be yeah, back ahead. later. We're, we're going to have a sandwich. Uh, yeah, very short on uh, on extras in this film. This is clearly a film they thought was going to get a bit a bigger release, and it didn't. Um, and it you know interviews trailer and the and that and uh, French language version available. 
for the JCVD fans. Um, also for the Canadians. Oh, them so too. yeah, that's pretty much it. This is very low on on anything overly demanding. You know, probably a rental. People still rent stuff. I know. There's the old they stuff. do. Yeah. In fact, um, Scarecrow Video in Seattle is now trying to go non-profit. Oh, wow. Which is awesome. And you should go to their website and, and so uh, basically and, and they're help gonna, them. they're going to become a library. Yeah. Wow. Which is awesome. That's something I've never heard a video store doing before. Which is, which is really cool. They, you know, they can't make it work as a business model anymore. Whereas in Austin, we can. Um, Phenomenal. So, yep. Phenomenal. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, maybe not a buy, but definitely a rental. Hey, that also kind of describes our next movie. Hey, guys. Nicolas Cage is still working. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but... Uh, the guy's still churning out movies, and his latest uh, is called Tokodrev, or at least that was the original Russian title. It's actually just called Rage. Rage now, yeah. Rage. Yeah. Uh, this very is ragey. A, this is a very ragey film, uh, and it's not about Professor Jeff for some reason. Um, so, or Jason Murphy. This is about Paul McGuire, who is a guy who is kind of a, a, a mover and a shaker in the local community. He's not an elected official, but he's a guy with a lot of money who helps get things done. Uh, he's very kind of... Uh, integral to the community, and he is all he really is concerned about in the whole world is his relationship with his daughter, uh, his daughter uh, Caitlin. So, wouldn't you know it? One night, Caitlin is hanging out with two friends, and these men come into the house, beat up the two friends, and kidnap Caitlin. So Nicolas Cage decides, oh, I'm in a Taken film. So he he musters up his best Liam Neeson, and wouldn't you know it, there are dark things in his past that make people like him a nightmare for people like the guys who took his daughter. And he has a very specific set of skills, except for the fact that his daughter uh, ends up dead. So he Very quickly. (laughs) Very quickly. Very quickly. So it moves from being Taken to more of a Death Wish type thing, where he's really just out for revenge. And the people from his past are, are pressuring him, look, don't start a fucking gang war just because your daughter got killed. We really need you to stay. We know we let you out of the business. You need to stay on the straight and narrow so you don't start shit. But he's Nicolas Cage. Of course he's going to start shit. Everybody knows he's going to start. And then where this movie goes is, I will admit, kind of unexpected. Yeah. I didn't really expect it to end the way that it did. It's it's surprisingly nasty. I mean, Very this is about nasty. basically it, it you know the it turns out that he has a a criminal past that is very quickly exposed and has very unpleasant friends. So it, it becomes less taken and more history of violence. Yeah. yeah. Um not as good. No, but, nowhere near as good. <laughs> nowhere near as good. But you get this feeling of you know this guy who does not know how to stop himself from making the worst decisions possible. Indeed. Um uh, Peter Stomar turns up as his, uh, his his former boss, who's now kind of quasi-respectable uh, himself, uh, but can never quite get as far out of the criminal life. And, mm. and Stomar's really, yeah, you know, him and Stomar together are actually pretty good. That's yeah. pretty entertaining. Um, Agreed. The Russian mob turns up and are every cliche about the Russian mob that you've ever expected. But again, those scenes pretty much work. I mean, this this is a workmanlike film. There's you, no don't, you don't get to see too many design. movies about the Irish mob versus the Russian mob. Yeah. Usually when you have a conflict that involves the Irish mob, it's against the Italians. Yeah. So as somebody who is such a nerd for mafia movies, I at least appreciated that. Yeah. I mean, it's... You know, it does go. It does get very violent in yes. in fascinating ways because it's so, it doesn't go. Oh, this is a big action sequence. It's like no, this is a bunch of guys who are hitting each other with baseball bats or stabbing each other. And and when Cage gets stabby, oh, it's yeah. like people. You know, it's like he just disemboweled that guy, and this is unpleasant. And you're like, you are a guy. Yes, we get understand understand that you are driven by rage about your your daughter's death, but at the same time, like 
Like, that guy's already you, dead. Stop stabbing yeah, him. Yeah, and, and his wife, who didn't know him when he was a, a criminal. Yeah, it's his second wife. His, yeah. The mother of his daughter has died. He's married uh, the green chick from Star Trek, who is just hot as hell. Holy hell. I love Rachel Nichols so much. Yeah. Anyway. But That's neither here nor there. There's a lot of interesting. There's a lot of interesting subtext about that. How people are fascinated with criminals. And he has a, this scene with her where, where he basically says, "You knew, you know what I am. You've always known what I am." And you like it. And you've tried to pretend you didn't know. And that's yeah. actually, a, you know, there's those moments where you go, this is still Nick Cage. This is still one of the, the most, yeah, erratic, but, you know, charismatic and, and powerful actors of his, of his generation. And there's moments where that flashes through. Yes. This is not the best thing. He's, this is no leaving Las Vegas, but there's moments where you still go, it's Nick Cage. Hell right. yeah, I'm in for the I role. mean, it, it's, it's encouraging to see him trying, even though the movie isn't great. My one Big issue with the entire film, and it's an issue I have with a lot of uh, low-budget action films. Get a fucking Steadicam oh. before I break both of your arms and glue the camera to your chest, a la Iron Man's Mark II suit. <laughs> for the love of God, every chase scene was so spastically shot that I was getting motion sickness. And you have Nicolas Cage, who was clearly trying to do all of his own fight scenes and doing things that are really, like, like I said, there's a scene where he just keeps stabbing a guy over and over, and it is brutal. To, it's kind of like something out of the raid. Yeah. But they shoot it so poorly, and I don't understand why. I don't understand, like, do you think that's more realistic, or were you trying to hide something? Yeah. I don't get it. It's it's terrible. Yeah. Not only that, but, okay, so his two cronies from the old days, there's that very kind of moving scene where they all get – it's very emotional. It's more emotional than you get from, like, uh, the the brotherhood of uh, of criminals type of scene where it's like, we're in this together. We're not going to take any money. You do the same for us. And they, they embrace and it's like Nicolas Cage gets very emotional. And in the very next scene – so you, you immediately are like, okay, these guys are criminals, but we like them. They obviously – there's honor. In the very next scene, they're tying a cinder block around an innocent girl's throat and throwing it out a window to interrogate somebody else. And it's like – uh, could have done without that yeah. because you're kind of muddying the emotional connection well, I, we just made with these guys. I kind of like that. You kind of you, you have to go. Oh, you know, if they didn't do this kind of stuff, these are okay guys, and you can understand how they manage to get away from you know their their criminal lives, and then suddenly they'll go. No, we we can we can still do this. We can snap back, and you kind of go. Ah, oh, okay. You know, you guys are you're making the worst possible choices, and you know this does this. It's got a like you said, it's got an ending which I, I was kind of surprised by. I think I, yeah. I saw some of it coming, but I didn't see all of it coming. Sure. I just It just blows me away that it's like right after the scene where they've really gotten, a, gotten us emotionally invested in these characters, they're like, I'm going to tie a rope around a cinder block and then around this poor crackhead girl who's asleep in the – she has nothing to do with anything. They wake her up, tie a rope around her neck, and tie the other end of a cinder, cinder block, throw it out the window to interrogate the, the crackhead guy, and then <laughs> – and then as they're walking away, like, I've never done that before. I thought her neck was just going to break. Yeah. It was like, cool. You guys are awesome. I immediately hate both of you. <laughs> you yeah. Way to squander the goodwill. And there's also a great moment in this where Nicolas Cage, in all seriousness, without the slightest trace of irony or humor, says to his friends, this, uh, this could get radical. And I'm just like, this could get what, Michelangelo? <laughs> this could get what? Speaking of... Speaking the, of... Now, uh, I, I'm going to warn you, you ladies and gentlemen, uh, this was the film this week that made Brian saddest, uh, but not for the reasons you are you are expecting. It's my pick of the week. It is. It, it is It is my pick of the week. Uh, I'm going to jump right in and talk about 
Turtle Power, the full title being... Turtle Power, the definitive history of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, a look under the shell. The d- wow, that's that's a, that's a mouthful. <laughs> as, is, as is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, let's be real. Uh, yeah. So this is a documentary all about the creation and sort of the ascension of uh, into pop culture... Uh, I don't know, pop culture legacy of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Now, I know that the, the new movie just came out, and I know that I really hated it because I did... But the thing you have to understand about me is that I have been a fan of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles since I was a very small kid. Um, somewhere there is a videotape of a six-year-old Brian Salisbury having a completely Ninja Turtles-themed birthday party. The cake is a Ninja Turtle face. All the hats are Ninja Turtles. All of my gifts were Ninja Turtle stuff. We played Pin the Tail on the Splinter. There are no friends at the party, but that is beside the point. The point really is that there is this insane fervor for this for this property that has laid dormant inside me and all this documentary did was light the the fuse inside me and now all i can think about is i have to get back every single action figure that i got rid of when i grew up because i want them all back i must have like it's oh my god so anyway the documentary starts with of course the creation of the comic book uh, which is something that I will admit I have never read, but after kind of seeing all the layouts and hear, hearing the creator, to, I'm blanking on the name, Peter Laird and uh, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. Yes, and Kevin Eastman talking about how they got started, what specifically they were trying to do with this. I mean, the thing that I gained the most from this documentary was that even though this became one of the most commercial properties of all time, it didn't start out as something where people were like, we're going to make this and make a lot of money. This is something where two people were like, we're inspired by Jack Kirby, we're inspired by Frank Miller's Daredevil, we're inspired by the independent pulp comics of the late 70s that people would just kind of self-publish and, and – th- like, they wanted to create something that was entirely theirs that also paid homage to the things that they loved, and they had to borrow money from their uncle to even publish the first – publish 3,000 copies of the first issue that they didn't think was going to sell. So – Hearing the story from the very beginning, and it's just being about these two nerds who loved comic books, wanted to make one of their own, moved into a house where they were basically eating ramen and working all the time, and to just kind of see what where it has gone. It's like, yes, it's gotten really commercial. Yes, you had the toys and the cartoons and all that stuff, but it just it, – it kind of it, – it filled me with a little bit of joy to know that like where this started was just two people with an earnest passion and what they created – uh, you know, from the panels that I was looking, at, I was like, I got to read this comic because it looks phenomenal. Oh, it is. And, you know, and what's really fascinating in this is it shows how quickly the turtles went from being literally a three thousand uh, copy print run in black and white in an off size edition, which is the first thing that annoys the hell out of comics readers. <laughs> like, it's not going to fit in my long box. Fuck you, it's not coming home. Um, <laughs> and within five years. They were selling a hundred million toys a year. This thing is, you know, it's the the ascension of a true cultural touchstone. Absolutely, um, and it goes through the entire history. So, and how quickly they went from zero to light speed. Mm-hmm. You know, of and I talked to the, the filmmaker, and, and he said, "We well, you know, this is about first. It's about the first comic, and then the first toy, and then the first animated series, and then the first film." And mm-hmm. um, because there's so much history yes. uh, that even just paring it down to those. Um, 
And it, and in the background, and he doesn't really bring it to, you know, he touches on it, but he doesn't necessarily make it a huge deal, is the fact that Eastman and Laird fell out completely. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Eastman basically went, hey, we can, we're going to do really well off this. We can just make toys and it'll be fine, and we can do more animated series, and some of the animated series will be good, and some of them won't be. Uh, and Peter Laird went, Jack Kirby... Remember, we were going to be Jack Kirby, and you know they they part the ways. And there's a, there are there's a kind of tender resolution, which is now you know part of the part of the history. But it, that actually you know it never forgets that this was about entertaining people, right? It's not going for the the true story of Eastman and Laird. It's like you know these two guys did something that made a lot of people happy. Uh, and there's really there's there's one moment where Kevin Eastman is just sits there and go, and the the, the documentarian says, well, you know, I mean. How do you feel looking back on all this stuff? And he says, you know, there's days where I really wish Peter was still here and we were still talking because the stuff we went through, because it happened so fast that nobody else can understand. It's not even explain it to them. They Mm. just can't get it. Right. But we went through it together and I miss having those moments with him. Uh, I mean, this is you know, it's a fan service documentary. It's time, but, it, but it's, it's it's time to come out with the with the new film. But it's so much more than that, and so much absolutely. That. And that's that's the thing I really want to touch on is that they don't even mention the new film in the documentary sensibly. They don't, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah, it was probably released as a as a way to promote the new movie, and yet they don't talk about the new movie at all. And I'm I'm really glad for that. But here's the other thing about this documentary: not only is it really well edited, which is really the 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 litmus test. For a good documentary, because so much of it it comes down to editing, but they talk to so many oh, yeah. people, and not just fans. They talk to all of the original four animated Ninja Turtle voices, including um, uh, Rob Paulson, who went on to be you know Yakko in the Animaniacs and had this incredibly prolific uh, voice acting career. But they also got one of the last interviews with James Avery, who most people know as Uncle Phil from uh, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, yep. who was the voice of Shredder. Yeah. Because of when this documentary was filmed, seeing it, it kind of – like I was kind of taken aback by it. This is, uh, this is obviously a labor of love that I think got picked up by Paramount when they knew the film was coming. Right. Uh, because you look at the – it reminds me of things like um, – Return to Crystal Lake, yes, which is the yes. kind of this huge fan-made documentary that is really the definitive history of of all the Friday the Thirteenth movies, and it and it it's got that feel of somebody who went, I'm going to do this, I'm going to get as much material as I can, and try and create something that is going to explain why this thing was so successful and so popular and what it meant to the people who were there at the time and it right. pulls it off in the same way that that you know, Return to Crystal Lake, which you know, I, I think many people regard as one of the greatest film documentaries ever made just from a point of view of actually documenting something, maybe not stylistically, but from a point of view of documenting what this is about and explaining it, I think this is phenomenal. Plus, they talk about that first Ninja Turtles movie and what it took to get it made and the fact that they worked with Golden Harvest, which I had completely forgotten. Uh, Golden Harvest, of course, being the, the one of the greatest martial arts studios ever created that did all of Jackie Chan's you know early films and... Here's here's the thing that I've come to realize. That movie is so much better than most people give it credit for. Yeah. It is an incredible feat on so many levels. And I think what has happened is there is a generational divide between most of the sort of the geek literati, uh, the critics, the uh, the writers who, you know, think nothing of being fans of 
you know, a guy in a comic book who gets mad and turns into a big green rage monster, but then look down their nose at like, oh, Ninja Turtles, that's for kids. That's a silly thing. Well, watch that first movie again and just marvel at what they were able to do in those suits and what Jim Henson created. Oh, yeah. And, and like, they talked to Brian Henson. They talked to two of the actors from Inside the Suits, including Ernie Reyes Jr., Woo-woo. who ends up being Kino in the second one. is an incredible martial artist. And they show behind-the-scenes footage of them creating these suits with these animatronic heads. And then they show Kevin Nash operating Splinter. And just what an amazing puppet Splinter. They did the very first close-up of a puppet. Like a like severe, tight, emotional close-up of a puppet because of how good Splinter looked. Yeah. That is it, – it, it's so amazing to me that people can look at the first Ninja Turtles movie and go, oh, that's stupid. And I have to say, the the that Splinter – Looks better than the one in uh, the Michael Bay produced abortion. It does. It, it, yeah, it absolutely it's, it does. Really stands up. It kind of reminds me of like when you see the Splinter fight in the new movie. It's like, yeah, he's got more range of motion. He can do more things. But it kind of reminds me of the Yoda fight in Episode Two, where you're like, I'm okay with him just being a puppet. I'm, I'm okay with us knowing he's a badass without having to show it by having a, fl- a CG version of him flip around the room. You know what I mean? It kind of had that. When I was watching this, I was kind of reminded of that. And then, of course. If you're like me, you'll watch this documentary and they'll show all the toys and be like, had that, had that, had that, had that. So now, ladies and gentlemen, I must announce that in addition to going back and reading the comics, which is going to happen, I am on a quest to recover all of my Ninja Turtles action (laughs) figures. Be that by plumbing the garage or the pit of sadness, as I call it, back home, or eBay, or there's a great place here in town called Outlaw Moon. Uh, that sells vintage toys. Of course, that's probably going to cost me about 20 bucks per action figure. But that's, that's the great thing about this documentary is it just gets you so excited. And I will freely admit that you probably won't have the same experience if you never played with the toys, if you never watched the cartoon, if you weren't a kid when the movie came out. I get that. But you do have to marvel at the things that they were able to do and the way they got all this put together. And it is a true underdog story. Yeah. The Laird and Eastman were able to take this really bizarre property that they really just did for fun and turn it into, you know, pop culture, you know. Everybody involved in this is people who are not supposed to be successful. Exactly. Even the toy company, because the toy company they used. Playmates. They, yeah, yeah, Playmates didn't mm-hmm. make their own figures. They were, they you know, they were... They were basically a for-hire company that made everybody else's figures. And then suddenly they go, let's do this. Let's go completely over the top. Let's design these figures that, you know, they're going to use more plastic. They're going to be ridiculous. They're going to be mm-hmm. like break all the rules about where you put the joints. Right. And everybody responded. This was about, you know, it, it's kind of a, you know, it's it's vaguely inspirational. It makes you feel happy inside. Yeah. It makes you feel like friendship is magic. No, 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 not yet. Aw. You you hold on to that, though, because one more thing I want to point out about this documentary is even when they're talking about the very worst of this franchise, and by that I mean they're coming out of their shells tour, they still... Yes, that's right. With Mike Lee and Black. That's the thing is they still (laughs) managed to pull interesting stories because one thing I didn't know is that comedian Michael Ian Black and uh, Robert Garant, I believe his name is, from Reno 911, they were just two kids at the time that, you know, that uh, the Ninja Turtles Broadway show was going on. And they got hired to dress up in the turtle suits and go around and promote it. And there's this great story they tell about going to an ice cream parlor in Juarez, Mexico (laughs) to promote this show. And it's just like even the worst – the worst moments of this franchise's history has interesting history behind it. And I think that's the the mark of a great documentary is you make us care even about the things that we shouldn't care about at yeah. all. <laughs> and speaking of... Things that we shouldn't care about at all. Um, 
Brian, what do you feel about bronies? All right, I want to. I want to say this, right Matt, now. Matt Frank. Hello. I want to publicly apologize to bronies. What? I would. Yes, I would. When we first started this website, we started with this motto of you know whatever your fandom is, we'll have a place for it. And initially, it was going to be whatever your fandom is, we have a place for it. Except you, bronies, go fuck yourselves. And that's wrong. That was wrong of me because what this documentary has showed me is that while I still don't get it. I get it. I get the fact that there's a great quote and there's a great quote in this documentary when the guy says, never underestimate the power of the things that you like. And it just reminds me that, you know, when we started the sports show, I had a lot of people like, I don't give two shits about sports. And it's Mm -hmm. like, that's fine. But I do. Everybody is going to have different things that they like. Everybody is going to have different things that unite them. And being the fact that we're all kind of from cut from the same geek cloth, we have traditionally, since time immemorial, been, been looking for things that bind us, things that unite us, whether that's a TV show we watch, a comic book we read, whatever. And I just have to accept that My Little Pony is another thing that certain people have latched onto and used it as a conduit for finding other people like them and developing their own group when the rest of society tells them you're weird and we don't want to be associated with you. And it's very specifically My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. The the bronies uh, who are depicted in the brony tale glommed onto this one thing. And in part, I think, and and they do say this, in in part it's because of who was involved in creating it. And that was uh, Lauren Faust... Uh, who was involved in things like um, Foster's Home for Imaginary Friends, which is one of my favorite uh, animated series of the last few years because it has this kind of depth and it is character-driven and there's this sense of tragedy under there somewhere. Um, and A Brony Tale really touches on that. And it, the conduit into this, uh, the, the director uh, is really close friends with Ashley Ball, uh, who is a voiceover actress who does provides a couple of the voices. And she got invited to, to BronyCon. She does the like, voices of Applejack and another one whose name I can't remember. Yeah, you knew Applejack. That's good enough. All right. Um, and Learning. They, and they... You know, she gets invited to BronyCon and she's like, this is going to be weird because there's going to be all these grown-up guys who are, you know, fascinated by My Little Pony. And they start exploring what it is that draws them to it. And, you know, there's basically some guys who just goes, you know what, I like it because it's well written. And it's fun. And yeah. that's it. And there's this one big bald biker dude who just goes, yeah, uh, I could strip down a, a Harley in 10 minutes and put it back together. And I really like My Little Pony. Right. Yeah. Deal with it. <laughs> like, like, and it's utterly. It's like it's not even like they they're unapologetic. They're just like I don't know. I don't even know why you'd have an issue with it. You know, traditionally, yes, and it does t- touch a little bit on you know gender expectations about you know. Oh, well, you're a grown man. You're not supposed to like it. And there's no argument for why not. See, here's that's the really fascinating. Here's thing. the thing that I will say that I don't like about this documentary, and that ha- my mind hasn't changed on. Like what you want to like, that's great. And I, I will hear, I, I will promise here and now that I will not make fun of bronies anymore on the air. Are you sure? I, I, that's no, a, I mean that's it. That's I mean right. it. Fair I enough. mean it. But I will say this: stop, please, stop claiming that you are changing things because you are not. The thing that irritated me the most in this documentary is some guy who was like, maybe if we keep being bronies, someday girls will learn that they can be astronauts and they can be, you know. Sports players, sports players, I believe is what he said. Uh, and it was just like, okay, all right, I'm going I'm to stop you right there. There already are female athletes. There are female astronauts. 
like what you want to like, but stop assigning these grandiose effects to the fact that you like a kid's show. There are kid shows that I like, but I'm not going to go out and say that because because I watch Adventure Time, children in Cameroon aren't going to be exploited anymore. Are you sure? They're not, uh. because it's just something that I watch, because I live in America where I can watch wherever the fuck I want. And it's like, I get that. and the, More power to you, but stop claiming that you're changing anything. Because you're not. Yeah, I think the more interesting moments are when there's a little bit of an explanation of why people are attracted to it. Uh, and Eventually, is- like, it takes, like, three or four interviews. I was like, guys, you keep saying things that could apply to some, like, oh, it's really well written. And, oh, there's actually a lot of references to adult things. And, oh, well, you know, it, it just has a good message to it. I'm like, there's so many other things that are made for people in your age bracket that do that, so I'm going to need a little bit more. Wait. I'm going to need a little bit more explanation here. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, there's actually a couple of academics who turn up and say, well, you know, I mean, this is kind of, you know, it's arguably a reaction to, um, you know, kind of America's post-9-11 psychosis of paranoia. And oh. that was, you know, some interesting moments where they go, yeah, well, maybe what is it people are, it's not necessarily this thing is great and unique and it, and, and, People are, you know, people are flocking to it because it's great and unique. They're find, they're looking for something and they're finding it in there. And that's mm. what's interesting. And, and it basically just goes, these people aren't, you know, pederasts or, or, no. or furries. They're just guys who happen to like a TV show. And when it keeps to that point, it's, it's really good fun. And there is a difference. And I will say this again on air. So it's on record. I understand that there is a difference between bronies and people that are into clop clop. I get that. Those are two different things. Because it's initially, what? Clop, do you, are you not? Oh my god! I'm so glad Cargill's not here. Um, <laughs> so Clop Clop is basically My Little Pony porn, and there is a sort of a a dark faction of bronies that are into this. Like, and one of them like was making the rounds, and I read this guy's. Basically, he has a uh, I don't know the purple one. He has like a stuffed animal of it, and he wrote this like story about their day together and how many times they had sex and it was just like really graphic and I was just like oh my god this is what is wrong with like those people I will never fucking understand and I will not give any quarter to I will grant no quarter to clop cloppers this is- that being said I understand that there needs to be a line of demarcation between clop clop and bronies I, I is that like when Amazon said they weren't sure whether we're going to start keep stocking things like you know, uh, taken by a pterodactyl uh, and the vast amounts of centaur rape porn. Yeah. Uh, it, well, yeah, the, yeah. those are wrong. This is not about those people. No, it's not um, at all. You know, uh, uh, for a you know, small independent documentary, although this is the um, the latest from um, uh, Morgan Spurlock's uh, release house. It's the first one he, he's putting out through his Warrior, own. Little... Warrior Poets, right? Isn't that his? Um, or, or is it the other one? There was... A... No, uh, uh, Morgan Spurlock, where, where in the world is Osama bin Laden? No, 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 uh, no, no. But isn't his company called Warrior? Oh, Poets? yes, it is. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's the first, it's the first release from from them. Uh, there's a uh, brief uh, thing called the Many Voices of Ashley Ball, in which she goes through the various voices she's done. For she's been working shows. for a long she's, time. She's, you know, it's it's weird. I've talked to a few people over the years who've done voiceover stuff, and they say it's a club. And once you're in and you're good, you will never stop working, and you wow. will have hundreds and hundreds of credits, and you do it from home now. Yay! Um, I should do that. Uh, Ashley Ball, The Day I Lost You Acoustic Performance, because she has a band. She's actually in yeah. a band, which is actually how the documentarian met her. They're, like, they're, they're, very, they're very fine. Um, Director's Speed Through the, the, the Secrets Film Commentary, which is basically a five-minute version of the film where he goes, oh, and that's that, and that's that, and that's that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Director Brent Hodge and Ashley Ball Photoshoot, because, you know... 
Ah, uh, that seemed like an idea at the time. Um, yeah. See, there's. I want to say this. One of the things that really weirded me out, what had nothing to do with bronies, uh, about this documentary, is the way there's some of the cinematography on Ashley leads me to believe that the director or the cinematographer may want to sleep with her big time. Maybe. Because there is an entire shot of her riding her bike, and you can't even see her head. It's all her ass. Just like the camera tight in on her ass. And I'm like... How does this help us understand anything about her? And they keep doing it. And then there's another shot where she's walking upstairs and the camera's like zooming into her cleavage. And I'm like, seriously? Who the fuck is behind this camera? Because he's the real perv. <laughs> so there are some things in here that, that kind of lent me a little bit more understanding. Not so much of what's great about My Little Pony Friendship is Magic, but instead that My Little Pony is just like anything else that we do. It's just something that people are into that helps them kind of find a kinship with other people who are kind of outcasts in the normal regard. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that bronies are like a special breed of outcasts. They're just like, you know, I'm an outcast for liking Italian post-apocalyptic movies. Like, we need people in a group to make us feel accepted because society at large, normal, quote-unquote normal people, don't understand the things that we're into. So on that level, bronies, we're cool. When did We're this totally become cool. a very special episode of Digital Noise? When I realized how much shit I've been giving bronies over the last few years, and it's not cool. Dana but- Plato's going to be taking medicine in the corner in a moment if he gets much more special. <laughs> anyway, moving True on. Story. Moving on to our final film. Keep a pin and Brony Tale will be coming back to it because it's actually going to be one of our giveaways. But before we get into our next giveaway, I want to talk about Motel Hell. Because oh. it takes all kinds of critters to make Farmer... Vincent's Fritters. Fritters. I couldn't remember the guy's name. Farmer Vincent's Fritters. So, yes, this is the latest from Scream Factory, and yet somehow I did not get a copy of this. Oh, so, Richard. Sadness. Here's the, here's the real sad part. I've never even seen this You've movie. You've never seen my, Oh, I'll have to lend you my copy, because this is, this is great fun. Uh, this is Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, from the family's point of view. Uh, it really is. Uh, it starts off... So, Texas with, Chainsaw 2. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, no, there's less creepy rape implication. Okay. Um, yeah, this is crazy farmer and his crazy sister and his crazy cousin and they run a farm in the middle of nowhere where they produce farmer vincent's smoked meat the finest smoked meat anywhere on the planet now Um, i'm just hungry um and uh yeah you see him and he's like you're smoking his meats and yeah they run a bed and breakfast and it's like oh isn't this all wonderful and his family buys some meats and goes off um and then he goes out and shoots a guy's bike tires so the guy falls off um rescues his girlfriend who decides oh i'm going to move in with this crazy farmer which <laughs> is ca- like there's not a lot of men- of narrative or character sense she's just there so she can be there at the end for the chase sequence to a certain degree um and yeah very quickly you find out that in fact what he's doing is he's getting people he is cutting out their vocal cords burying them up to their necks keeping them fed and sedated um or more importantly hypnotized with weird lights and then putting bags on their head until the meat is sufficiently matured then he kills them and turns them into jerky i'm still hungry yeah it's it, this is completely barking mad but it's it's superb fun this is like it's so over the top at every level um you know the family is turning on each other and there's the implication of you know maybe there's some incestuous stuff going on but they're all completely bonkers it culminates in a chainsaw duel um, what in the smoke in the smokehouse where all these bodies are while while you know the 
the, the uh, voice boxless uh, crazies are wondering. Aah! But what makes what makes it really superb is that one of the people involved in the chainsaw duel is wearing a pig head. <laughs> and this is this is one of the great images from this film. This is dopey as all hell. Nice. Uh, but it has an absolute cult following, well-deserved. Um, bonkers. Just just silly and fun. If you like dry, you know, 80s starting to get self-aware drive-in horror, but not at the point where they're, like, they're doing nothing but turning around going, nudge, wink, wink, nudge, a a a. This is just before that point where it's kind of smart, kind of sardonic, uh, pretty gory in a few places, which, you know, for this kind of thing you really want. There's a couple of, of, of good, you know, crazy deaths. Um, the villains get their comeuppance, which is why there's no Motel Hell 2. Uh, it is actually set at the Motel Hello. Um, <laughs> and and the O keeps blinking out, and you're like, ah, oh, Motel Hell, which is, makes you wonder why anybody stops there in the first place. Because uh, <laughs> this isn't the first time that O has gone out. Yeah, this you is, know they've had that problem before. This is you know it, it it's a classic of of that kind of eighties filmmaking, and I still love it. I've seen beaten up old prints of this and just clap throughout the entire thing. This is a beautiful restoration by our, our good friends over at Scream Factory. Um, if, yeah, if you like this kind of horror, this is a must buy. Absolute must buy. This is very close to being my pick of the week, but just edged out. The, just edged out. This also it has a new audio commentary with director Kevin Connor. Uh, there's a new feature called It Takes All Kinds, The Making of Motel Hell, which has interviews with Kevin Connors, uh, Kevin Connor, the uh, producer, writer Robert Jaff, and Stephen Charles. Uh, and also actor Mark Silver. Uh, there's a thing about the cinematography. There's an interview with actor Paul Linke. There's there's so much. The original trailer, photo galleries. They have crammed so much. Again, because that's what Screen Factory does. Is they take yep. these completely forgotten or very sort of like horror geek only titles. And they give them the Criterion style treatment. Yep. And, you know, we got to love them for that. And I'm definitely checking this out. And I love the fact that it stars Rory Calhoun, who is mostly known for doing TV Western. Yes. <laughs> kind of reminds me of when um, when you watch uh, Tourist Trap. Yeah. And you've got, um, oh, my gosh, uh, completely blanking on the name. This was a terrible story to start. I don't know <laughs> where I was going. Yeah, it, it's, it's Chuck very, Connors. Yeah. you got Chuck Connors playing kind of a, a crazy uh, hotel owner. This is, this, is very, this is very close kin to uh, Tourist Trap. Oh, yeah, it's very, I'm in. it's very much in the same, in the same kind of like, yeah. You know. That was the last thing I needed to hear. Yeah. I'm totally, totally in. Well, that brings us to our last title of the day, which is going to be our second of two giveaways. But uh, first, we need to explain what it's all about. Uh, and this is this is actually, and this was a, this was a tough one for me this week because this is actually a, you know between Motel Hell and Turtle Power and and Lock. Shut up, you're wrong. Um, nope. <laughs> uh, this one just nudged uh, ahead for me, and this is Proxy. Uh, this is a horror film. Uh, it did the festival circuit last year. Um, the basic idea and the, the starting point is a woman uh, goes to see her doctor. She's just short of nine months pregnant. Uh, everything's fine. She walks out, um, gets hit on the head with a rock. Don't. And while she is unconscious, uh, the unseen assailant beats the beats her bump with a rock, with the same rock. Oh, you know, I mean, this is this is 
we're in a brutal place. We're this is this is way. not easygoing cinema. So you have been warned. Like you know, <laughs> dear viewer, fast forward to the questions at the end if you if you're um, a little bit uh, if you're off put by this kind of thing. Yikes. She clearly loses the baby and and starts attending a. Um, a support group uh, for women who have lost their children and and, uh, and close family members, and this is when the film gets even weirder and creepier and unnerving because you discover that she is not an innocent victim; she is up to something, as are various other people I- involved. Um, you will find yeah, you will find out why it's called Proxy as it goes along, and don't want to spoil that because it's such a key part of what this film is about. When you work out what the title means, mm-hmm. um, which happens about the one hour mark, and you're like, oh wow, this is why I didn't know what these characters were up to, and you realise there's something very very horrible going on here. This is this is body horror in the way of kind of. You know, before, uh, well, Cronenberg, after he stopped feeling like he had to add some weird kind of proto science fiction element and you're, mm-hmm. you're in more of the realm of things like Crash. Okay. Um, this is, you know, very disturbing. Um, you know, it, in a lot of ways, it's something, you know, it's in the same uh, area as something like Inside, which you were referencing earlier. I think, ah. you, you know, if, if you can, if you have the stomach for that, it's, I think it's a bit more psychological and less just overly grotesque uh, than, than Inside. Um, Joe Swanberg turns up hey. uh, as as the husband of one of the women at the support group. And as Joe puts it in the in one of the many, many, many uh, extras on this disc, yeah, I don't make this kind of film, but I seem to increasingly get cast in it. <laughs> <laughs> um the the two central uh female performances uh the actresses whose name has escaped me for for this second um uh alexia uh, rasmussen and uh alexa havens um yeah they really drive it when you suddenly realize like how critically broken these two people are um this is just you know it's levels of sadness as well this is yeah. This is a hard piece of film to watch, and you'll, you'll probably need a stiff drink afterwards. Uh, you know, there's a, one of the pull quotes on here says it's going to go part Kubrick, uh, part von Trier. Uh, I think Whoa. it has a lot more emotional connection because those are two directors who don't really make you feel like you should have any sympathy for anybody who's involved in anything at all. Uh, they, those are two directors that don't like people very yeah. much <laughs> whereas this is kind of like you know you you feel that the, the director likes people uh mm. but there's you know appreciates that they can be so critically broken um that they can do hideous hideous things to each other right um you know i really was I, you know this kind of came and went through the festival season without much attention which is a real shame because if you like kind of transgressive horror mm-hmm. um uh, and character driven horror i think this real and i mean this is really horror this is not jump scares this is about how unpleasant human beings can be to each other mm-hmm. uh told through you know a a story of personal tragedy i got you and i you know and how you know, there's a character who you suddenly realize, like you think from much of the film is, is really unpleasant. And then you realize he's just manipulated. And you're like, this is, this is just a tragedy for all concerned. Huh. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not easy watching, but I have to say, I really, really liked it. All right. Well, that's one of our two giveaways this week. And if you guys may remember that we do sort of a Twitter writing prompt style giveaway, 
So what you're going to want to do to win proxy is first follow us on Twitter at one of us net. And then I want you to tweet, make sure you're following us, by the way. We've had a few people tweeted us and then we've had trouble getting in contact with them when they win. Please follow us at one of us net. And what you're going to do is Richard. Uh, you, you're not going to do Richard, but no, Richard, what, are they, what do they need awkward. to do? Uh, the, the, uh, this week's question for this is, uh, which body part would you least like to have smashed with a rock and why? And not it can't just be because it would kill me. You can't say your junk. Or your yeah. junk. <laughs> you know. It can't be your junk and it can't be – the reason can't be because I would die. Yeah. No, we want, we want more specific, uh, more reflective answers than that. And use the hashtag? Hashtag proxy giveaway. Yes. All right. So that's our first giveaway. And the second one, as we mentioned before, is a brony tale. Oh, oh better, better point out, by the way, uh, a proxy is Blu-ray. So brony tale if, is DVD. Yeah. Yes. So if you don't have a Blu-ray player, then, you know, sorry. Then uh, what planet go, are you go living on? Go buy it. Uh, yeah. So uh, a brony tale. Yes. Um, that is our second prompt. So again, follow us at one of us net on Twitter. And then the writing question for that will be... <sighs> This is going to make him so angry. <laughs> Hi, Chris. If Chris Cox was a My Little Pony, what would his My Little Pony name be? Extra points for fan art. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to throw that out there. So yeah, you know Cargill's just got his got his pen and paper out and going, "I'm doing this shit. I'm, yeah, winning, yeah. I'm winning this." Somehow he can hear us recording this right now before <laughs> it's even posted. Uh, so yes, if Chris Cox were a My Little Pony, what would his name be? And you're going to hashtag that Brony giveaway, and we'll pick our favorite person, uh, open to U.S. residents only, and we will send them a DVD copy of Brony Tale. No. Oh. And that's the end of the show. Aww. We did it. It's over. Hey. We somehow proved that you and I can occupy the same space at the same time, Ooh. and the universe will not implode. Are you sure? Uh, no. no. Still not entirely sure. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Digital Noise. Uh, once again, you can follow us on Twitter at DigiNoiseCast. You can like the website on Facebook, Facebook.com slash one of us net. Please do consider giving to our GoFundMe account for our fan Eli who is uh, facing homelessness right now we're trying to do the best we can for him uh, I want to thank you by the way for your donations that have already come in we've already sent some of those funds uh, to Eli and it's been very helpful so thank you so much for opening your hearts and your wallets and please do consider becoming a subscriber to oneofus.net and before we go Richard I feel like we never do this where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me um, um, uh, on Twitter at, uh, at Yorkshire uh, TX uh, and also within the pages of the Austin Chronicle which is also – your articles are also online for them, right? Yeah, at uh, austinchronicle.com. Boom. You can find me on Twitter at Salisbury. You can also find me uh, co-hosting the Junk Food Cinema Podcast with uh, your your friend and mine, Mr. C. Robert Cargill, over on Film School Rejects. We just did Big Trouble in Little China this week. When do you get back, by the way? Uh, next week. Ah. Next week. Hey, that I, that's something I actually wanted to mention is that this week's episode was about Big Trouble in Little China. And there is, for subscribers, ah. a commentary of Big Trouble in Little China in the subscriber forums featuring Mr. Richard Whitaker himself. And my, and my wife. Yes, absolutely. Melissa Plunkett. Melissa and Richard are great, and that uh, that commentary is fucking phenomenal. So Thank you. Good work. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Until next week, I just want to remind you that no release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, Richard is wrong about the